Well, good morning, friends. It's so good to be with you. My name is Ethan Magnus, one of the pastors here, and so glad to be uh, with you as we continue our series, Promised. Uh, before I jump into that, got a couple things. Got a lot of stuff going on as we head into Easter. I want to remind you of a few of those things. Uh, you heard in the announcements they mentioned that New Testament in a year, this challenge we've made to one another to try and read the whole New Testament in a year continues. Five chapters a week will get you all the way through. If you've fallen off the wagon or got distracted over spring break and you want to jump back in, this next week is a great week to do that because we're starting a new book of the Bible. We start John uh, this week, and so if you want to jump back in, pick up one of the schedules on the way out, or you can find it on our website. Uh, we start John next week, so just five chapters a week get you all the way through the New Testament. This is your last chance to read one of the Gospels, so jump in with us in John as we I think it'll be a great way to prepare your hearts uh, for Easter. I also want to make sure, uh, just to, just you heard uh, Michael already mentioned this Welcome to FCC class. We've been doing this for about a year. Um, and in some sense, the class is mainly designed for people who are new to the church or just looking to get connected. Uh, but over the last year, several people have come, either they've become as volunteers or they've just kind of wandered in, who had been in the church a long time. And every time that happens, they say to us, why don't you tell everybody about this class? This class is really great. So we... We're going to do that. Okay, so um, you'll see, you'll get on the way out this little flyer here that'll have the dates for the upcoming classes. Um, we really are getting some fun feedback from this class, so we really encourage you to come. Um, and uh, maybe by knowing what's going on in that class, it'll make it easier for you to invite people to it as new people do come to the church. So maybe you'd be interested in that, and you'll get those details at the end of the service. Uh, Easter is on its way here. Uh, hopefully you've already started thinking about uh, the service times and the service schedule. Uh, we talked about that last week. Service times on Saturday, 3.30 and 5. On Sunday, 8, 9.30 and 11 in here. Downstairs at 10 and 11.30. Uh, as always, uh, we believe that God will be gracious and invite, bring a lot of guests into our worship service. And one of the ways we prepare for that is by those of us who are here all the time, we make a decision uh, to worship uh, either on Saturday or on Sunday morning. We, for this to work out, for us to have enough room for all the people we expect God will send to us, uh, we need about eight or 900 of us to worship on Saturday and we need about 300 to worship at the 8 a.m. service on Easter morning. So maybe you can be part of that. Maybe you could gather up your family and worship Saturday or something like that. That'd be great. Of course, if you're inviting guests and the only service they can come to is 11 o'clock on Easter Sunday, come then, come with them. Uh, speaking of inviting guests, I hope maybe you've already started to think about who you're going to invite. You know people who don't have a place to be on Easter. You know people who, unless you invite them, will not hear the good news of Jesus Christ, will not be reminded that he has risen from the dead, and will not have an opportunity to give their lives to him so that they too can have eternal life. You know people who, if you don't invite them, they won't have that on Easter. Uh, so I just hope you'll take that seriously, that God has put you into the lives of some people, and, and you, you're the only one who's going to tell them. And if you don't, nobody will. So maybe in the next three weeks, you'll just trust God to give you an opportunity uh, to do that. As we prepare for Easter, one of the things we're going to do here in our services is be looking at a few of the stories from Jesus' life that led up to his crucifixion and resurrection. 
Even this week, as we're in this promise series, we'll be doing that. Today's text is one of these texts that sort of answers the question, why did they kill Jesus? Have you ever found yourself wondering that? I mean, he was such a nice guy. All he did was walk around healing people and telling them to love each other. Why would you kill somebody like that? Well, today's text gives us a glimpse into the answer. We're in the midst of this series, Promised. Uh, This series has just been a, a glimpse, a very short look at Old Testament prophecy, how the prophets worked, what they teach us about Jesus, and how they still speak to us today. We started off by talking about what prophets were. We said they were heralds of the covenant. They reminded us of the promises we'd made to God, and they reminded us of the history of God's character. We looked last week at the truth that God's prophetic word, even once it has been fulfilled, continues to speak truth. The promises aren't finished just because they're fulfilled. We looked at Isaiah chapter 7, this great word of hope when Israel was in a desperate situation. And then that word of hope had a renewed fulfillment in Jesus, not just for Israel, but for the whole world. And we observed that now that truth, once fulfilled, twice fulfilled, is still true. That God still is with us. God still loves us. God still heals and rescues us when we are in a desperate situation. And this week, we look at another one of those prophecies. Another one of those twice-fulfilled but still true prophecies. Another one of those prophecies that was not finished in its fulfillment, but rather confirmed by its fulfillment so that we can trust it is still true today. But, unlike last week's text, which left us all feeling so nice and encouraged that there was hope for us in desperate situations, this twice-fulfilled, twice-confirmed promise of God is not one of the nice ones. In fact, the first time this sermon was preached, they tried to kill the guy who preached it. The second time this sermon was preached, they did kill the guy. Who preached it. Now, in the intervening years, I know of many preachers who have successfully preached this sermon without anyone killing them or attempting to kill them, but I'll be honest, I don't know anybody who has preached the text that we're about to look at without upsetting a few people. I'll be honest, it upsets me. I haven't even particularly enjoyed reading this text. It's a wonderful text. It's a delightful text. But it's just so challenging and convicting of my own comfortable life. It's not even that much fun to read. But even though it got the first two people who preached it killed, and even though it might not be the most fun for us, it's a vital prophecy for understanding how prophets worked in their day, and it's an essential prophecy prophecy if you want to understand Jesus and why the people turned on him so quickly in that final week. The first person to preach this sermon was a guy named Jeremiah. 
Jeremiah was a prophet about 75-ish years after Isaiah. If Isaiah was a prophet of hope, saying basically, don't worry, God will save us, it's not as bad as it looks, Jeremiah was a prophet of doom, saying, worry, God isn't going to save us, it's worse than it looks. And that was basically the only sermon he preached. We call him the weeping prophet because his own sermons made him break down in tears for his people. One of his first and most influential sermons is what we call the Temple Sermon of Jeremiah. It's recorded in Jeremiah chapter 7. It goes on for three or four chapters, but we'll just look at the opening section. Jeremiah chapter 7. If you've got it in your Bibles, you might want to grab it. It'll be up on the screen as well. This is the word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord. Stand at the gate of the Lord's house and there proclaim this message. Hear the word of the Lord, all you people of Judah who come through these gates to worship the Lord. This is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says. Reform your ways and your actions and I will let you live in this place. Do not trust in deceptive words and say, Look, it's the temple of the Lord. The temple of the Lord. The temple of the Lord. If you really change your ways and your actions and deal with each other justly, if you do not oppress the foreigner, the fatherless, or the widow, and do not shed innocent blood in this place, then if you do not follow other gods to your own harm, I will let you live in this place. In the land I gave your ancestors forever and ever. But look, you're trusting in deceptive words that are worthless. Isaiah had comforted the people, you see, saying, we have God's temple. If we are faithful, God would save us. And Jeremiah comes saying, do not think that just because you have the temple, you'll be safe if you abandon God's law. He goes on, will you steal and murder, commit adultery and perjury, burn incense to Baal, follow other gods you've not known, and then come and stand before me in my house, which bears my name, and say we are safe? Safe for what? Safe to do all these detestable things? Has this house, which has my name on it, become a den of robbers to you? I've been watching, declares the Lord. Go now to the place in Shiloh where I first made a dwelling for my name. And look what I did to it. Because of the wickedness of my people Israel, while you were doing all these things, declares the Lord, I spoke to you again and again, but you did not listen. I called you, but you did not answer. Therefore, what I did to Shiloh, I will do now to the house that bears my name, the temple you put your trust in, the place I gave to you and your ancestors. I will thrust you from my presence, just as I did your fellow Israelites, the people of Ephraim. God says, look at Shiloh. Look what I did there when my people abandoned my covenant. How can you be treating my temple and my house as somehow the hideout that keeps you safe so you can go off and commit your crimes and then retreat to the temple again and again? 
There's an audience shift in verse, 15, verse 16. God turns his attention to Jeremiah. He says to him, So do not pray for this people. Do not offer any plea or petition for them. Do not plead with me, for I will not listen to you. Do you not see what they are doing in the towns of Judah, in the streets of Jerusalem? The children gather wood, the fathers light a fire, the women knead the dough, they make cakes to offer to the queen of heaven. This is a way of worshiping Asherah. They pour out drink offerings to other gods to arouse my anger, but am I the one they are provoking, declares the Lord? Are they rather not harming themselves to their own shame? Therefore, this is what the Sovereign Lord says. My anger and my wrath will be poured out on this place, on man and beast, on trees of the field and the crops of your land. It will burn and will not be quenched. This is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says. Go ahead. Add your burnt offerings to your other sacrifices. Then eat the meat yourselves. For when I brought your ancestors out of Egypt and spoke to them, I didn't just give them commands about burnt offerings and sacrifices. God's saying, I didn't just teach them how to worship. I didn't just tell them about the temple. I didn't just give them religious laws. I also gave them this command. Obey me, and I will be your God, and you will be my people. Walk in obedience to all that I command you, that it may go well with you. But they did not listen or pay attention. Instead, they followed the stubborn inclinations of their evil hearts. This is Jeremiah's first big sermon. And a couple chapters later, we discover it made the people so mad that a conspiracy arose to have him killed over it. The sermon itself is pretty simple. Jeremiah reminds them, you were given a covenant a, a, a deal with God, a commitment to God of how God would treat you and how you would obey God. He reminds them, you have a history. You can look at what happened to Shiloh just 80 years ago. You can, you can go there and see the destruction of what God did when God's people rejected God's ways. But you have believed a lie, he said. The lie you've believed is that somehow your religious practice is enough to make God happy. That that, that God cares more about the temple and the right sacrifices and the right offerings and the right worship services and the right music more than your faithfulness to God. They believe the lie that that if their worship service was good, if they kept the temple running, that God didn't care about their obedience and their justice, and their love, and their mercy, and their faithfulness. So, Jeremiah says, you've just ignored the covenant. You've forgotten about justice. You've forgotten about the oppressed, the orphan, the widow, and the foreigner. You've worshipped other gods. Now, the temple's still running. He says you're still sacrificing to the one true God. You're just adding in all these other gods as well. You've abandoned honesty, Jeremiah says. You've abandoned chastity. You've abandoned basic morality. Their worship had become corrupted 
Worship was no longer a transforming encounter with the one true God who loved them, but also led them in the paths of righteousness. No, worship had become a crutch, a cover. Worship, Jeremiah says, it had become a hideout for thieves, only serving to allow them to continue in their crimes. And he ends by saying consequences are coming. The same consequences which we saw in Shiloh will now be realized in Jerusalem. And Jeremiah was right. He himself would live to see the day that the armies of Babylon would march in and cart off the citizens of Judah to exile into Babylon, destroy the temple, destroy the city, destroy the walls. This temple sermon of Jeremiah, his first big sermon as a prophet, and it almost got him killed. And this is the sermon that Jesus decided to preach. What was he thinking? It was near the end of Jesus' ministry. Uh, He was in Jerusalem uh, for what would be the final time. Days away from his arrest and execution, tensions were rising, and Jesus and his disciples went into the temple. And there in the outer courts, business was busy. Uh, The temple of Herod's day was a magnificent thing. It was an amazing thing. People traveled from far and wide to see the glory of the temple, to offer a sacrifice in the temple. And temple offerings had to be offered in temple currency. So money changers were needed. So you could trade your Roman coin for temple coin. And of course they made a little bit on the side. Temple sacrifices had to be offered with the right kind of animals. So animal sellers were needed so that the work of the temple could go forward. It was a lot easier to go to Jerusalem and buy an animal there than it was to cart your animal all the way from the farm. So the outer courts of the great temple of Herod were filled with essential commerce to keep the worship of the temple moving. Mark 11 records the scene this way. On reaching Jerusalem, Jesus entered the temple courts and began driving out those who were buying and selling there. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the benches of those selling doves and would not allow anyone to carry merchandise through the temple courts. He taught them and he asked this question. Isn't it written... My house will be called a house of prayer for all nations. But you have made it a den of robbers, a hideout for thieves, a refuge for bandits. The chief priests and the teachers of the law heard this. And just like they did in Jeremiah's day, began looking for a way to kill him, for they feared him because the whole crowd was amazed at his teaching. We need to understand, Jesus doesn't just wander into the temple and pitch a fit when he starts overturning the tables and casting out the, those coming to sell their merchandise. Jesus is there to shut the place down. 
If the money changers can't do their work, well, no one can offer an offering because you couldn't offer an offering with Roman coin. If the sellers of doves and goats and lambs can't sell their doves and goats and lambs, then no one can offer a sacrifice because only certain sacrifices can be made. Jesus' demonstration is not a random act of violence. It is an intentional decision to shut down worship for the rest of the day. And then once he has everyone's undivided attention, he goes and stands in the gates of the temple just where Jeremiah stood. And he preaches the sermon that Jeremiah preached. And remember, it came true the first time. This is a prophecy already fulfilled, and as we've figured out, a fulfilled prophecy is not a finished prophecy, it's just a confirmed prophecy. And this prophecy came true the first time. The last time this sermon was preached, in that spot, the temple was destroyed. Uh, Most scholars who look at the Gospels think that this one sentence of Jesus probably represents a whole sermon, that he would have preached a whole sermon uh, on the theme, balancing, contrasting the themes of Isaiah 56 and Jeremiah 7. But even if he'd only preached one sentence, even if he'd just said this one sentence, you have made it a refuge for robbers, a hideout for bandits, a den of thieves, even if he just preached that one sentence, everybody would have known what he meant. Everybody would have known he dares come stand in this temple, this glorious tribute to the might of Herod and the glory of God, this beautiful place of worship and honor. He dares stand here and preach Jeremiah 7 again. You see, Jesus is placing into contrast two prophecies. One, you already know, the dark prophecy of Jeremiah 7, that because we let our worship perpetuate injustice, God will destroy even our worship. In contrast to that, though, Jesus places the beautiful prophecy of Isaiah 56. This is what the Lord says. Maintain justice and do what is right, for my salvation is close at hand. My righteousness will soon be revealed. Blessed is the one who does this, the person who holds it fast, who keeps the Sabbath without desecrating it and keeps their hands from doing any evil. Let no foreigner who binds themselves to the Lord say, the Lord will surely exclude me from his people. Let no eunuch complain, I am only a dry tree. For this is what the Lord says to the eunuch who keeps my Sabbaths, who choose what pleases me and holds fast to my covenant. To them I will give within my temple and its walls a memorial and a name. Better than sons and daughters, I will give them an everlasting name that will endure forever. And the foreigners who bind themselves to the Lord, to minister to Him, to love the name of the Lord, to be His servants, and all who keep the Sabbath without desecrating it, those who hold fast to my covenant, these I will bring to my holy mountain. I will give them joy in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and sacrifices will be accepted on my altar, for my house will be called a house of prayer 
for all nations. This, Jesus says, is how the worship of the temple was meant to function. The worship of the temple was meant not to protect their injustice, but to promote justice. Not to create an exclusive club. We are the ones with the temple of the Lord. But instead, to include everyone. The worship of the temple was meant to be a place of welcome and inclusion. But in Jeremiah's day, it had gone completely wrong. People used worship as an excuse to persist in their sin and ignore injustice. People used the rightness of their worship, and they were worshiping correctly according to the law. People used the rightness of their worship as an opportunity to exclude outsiders and take pride in themselves. And the temple of Jesus' day was grander still, more famous Still, more wonderful still, and Jesus shows up and says, it's all gone wrong again. The worship of God was meant to be a house of prayer for all nations, he says, but you have made it a hideout for thieves. The way you worship, Jesus says, does more harm than good. The prophecy of Jeremiah was already fulfilled, but it was not finished. And when the people heard Jesus say this, they knew it was bad news. The last time God fulfilled this prophecy, it was through destruction and desolation, exile and death. And Jesus says it's happening again. Some people sometimes wonder, did Jesus know just what sort of trouble he was getting into that last week of his life? We're going to look next week at another story from the last week of his life that gets Jesus in a little bit of hot water. But if you're wondering, did he know what kind of trouble he was getting in? The answer is absolutely yes. You have to be clear. When you go stand in the gates of the temple of Herod and start quoting Jeremiah 7, you are asking to get killed. And of course, that's exactly what they did. Right then, right there, they realized this is it. This man must die. But even at risk of his life, Jesus needed the people to hear the truth. You have forgotten the purpose of worship. You have forgotten that worship without justice is worthless. And worship without welcome is worthless. And worship without obedience to the one that you worship is worthless. And church today, if a prophecy that is fulfilled is not finished, but is instead just getting started, well then this prophecy is still true for us today. Jeremiah 7, as much as I wish it didn't, as hard as I find this sermon to read, I find it even harder to apply to my own life. And as much as I wish it did not still speak the true promises of God, it does. Because that's the way prophecy works. Still today, we are in danger of thinking that the rightness of our worship matters more than our pursuit of justice and holiness and obedience to God. Still today, our worship... I'm going to tell you a ridiculous story of me as a little kid. 
I wish this wasn't true. I'm only telling it to you because I'm thinking maybe I'm not the only one who has this crazy idea. When I was a little boy, this is absolutely true. When I was a little boy, I had this in my head. That if you were going to lie and disobey your parents, you should definitely do it on like a Friday or a Saturday. Because then you'd be in church like really quickly on Sunday to tell God how sorry you were. Like you totally should not disobey your parents like on a Monday or Tuesday because then you would feel guilty about it all week long. Like this is what I had in my head as a little boy. I don't know where I got it in my head that worship was somehow the, you know, the, the get out of jail free card that allowed me to just return to my crimes. But that was what happened to me with worship. And I, I know it sounds crazy, but I don't think I'm the only one. As a young adult, and I, I had many peers like this, I just, I used the promises of God's grace as an excuse to magnify my sin. It's just what I did. And I don't think I'm the only one who did it. And I don't think I'm the only one who does it. And the reason I don't think so is because this prophecy is still here and it's still true. And Jeremiah had to preach it, and Jesus had to preach it, and I think probably I have to preach it, if only to myself. I, I talk to people sometimes who are confused like this. You know, we'll get talking, and I'll, I'll say things like, so do you think you're following Christ with your life? And they'll respond, well, I go to church. And I'll think that's not quite the same thing, is it? I'll say to somebody, have you given Christ lordship over your life? Are you seeking to live justly and, and love others the way Jesus did? And they'll say, I, I tithe. And I'll say, that's not exactly the same thing, is it? I'll talk to people and I'll say, are you letting God's spirit convict you of your sin, confront you with your gossip and jealousy and envy and pride and cruelty and selfishness? Are you letting the Spirit of God confront you in your sin? And they'll say, well, I'm in the worship band. I sing in the choir. I teach Sunday school. I, I participate in the religion of my day. And, and I think sometimes we forget that God wants to do more than get us saved. Saved for what? That's the question Jeremiah asks, right? Don't just tell me that you're safe in the religion of your God. Tell me, for what were you saved? Jeremiah wants to know. And then he tells them you were saved for righteousness and for holiness and for justice and for mercy and for love. Our worship of God must always be a paradox. Our worship of God must always be a paradox. We must always be declaring grace. Coming to church, worshiping God, should remind me that I am forgiven from the burden of my sin. And it should remind you of that too. You are forgiven for the burden of your sin. But coming to church should also always convict me that God doesn't just want to forgive you for your sins. God wants to free you from your sins, to invite you and call you into a new way of life. See, here's the thing. The bad news is that the prophecy of Jeremiah 7 is still true. 
And when we let our worship become an obstacle to God's justice and mercy, our worship is worthless. The good news is that the prophecy of Isaiah 56 is also still true. Isaiah 56 still speaks. God has not given up on this promise. My temple shall be a house of prayer for all nations. Worship is for everyone. Worship promotes justice and teaches us to love all people. Worship as God designs it should t- helps us welcome the foreigner and the stranger and the oppressed and the lonely. Worship teaches us to obey God's law, to submit our lives to Christ's lordship, and God has not given up on these things. So today, here's the invitation. Let God save you. And then let God lead you. Let God teach you how to worship the truth that you are rescued from your sins. And then let that same worship convict you, challenge you, break your heart a little bit that God might lead you away from your sins. Let the worship of God lead you to justice and mercy and faithfulness. This is the God that we worship. And this is how we worship. Let's pray. Gracious God, oh, teach us to worship you. Teach us to trust you and love you. Forgive us when our worship becomes like in the days of Jeremiah and the days of Jesus, an obstacle to our obedience. When it becomes a source of pride, that pulls us away from you. And instead, God, on this and every day, let our worship draw you toward a fuller submission to our Lord Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.